Let's open God's Word this evening to the book of Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11. We will read the first 31 verses as well as the last four verses, 44 through 47. And we will really be considering the chapter as a whole for tonight's sermon. Leviticus chapter 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying unto them, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts which ye shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Whatsoever parteth the hoof, and is cloven-footed, and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that shall ye eat. Nevertheless, these shall ye not eat of them that chew the cud, or of them that divide the hoof. As the camel, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof, he is unclean unto you. And the coney, which he, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof, he is unclean unto you. And the hare, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof, he is unclean unto you. And the swine, though he divide the hoof and is cloven-footed, yet he cheweth not the cud, he is unclean to you. Of their flesh shall ye not eat, and their carcass shall ye not touch. They are unclean to you. These shall ye eat of all that are in the waters. Whatsoever hath fins and scales in the waters and in the seas and in the rivers, them shall ye eat. And all that have not fins and scales in the seas and in the rivers, of all that move in the waters and of any living thing which is in the waters, they shall be an abomination unto you. They shall be even an abomination unto you. Ye shall not eat of their flesh, but ye shall have their carcasses in abomination. Whatsoever hath no fins nor scales in the waters, that shall be an abomination unto you. And these are they which ye shall have an abomination among the fowls. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle and the ossifrage and the osprey and the vulture and the kite after his kind, every raven after his kind, and the owl and the nighthawk and the cuckoo and the hawk after his kind, and the little owl and the cormorant and the great owl and the swan and the pelican and the gyre eagle and the stork, the heron after her kind, and the lapwing and the bat. All fowls, really all flyers that creep, going upon all four, shall be an abomination unto you. Yet these may ye eat of every flying, creeping thing that goeth upon all four, which have legs above their feet to leap withal upon the earth. Even these of them... Even these of them ye may eat, the locust after his kind, and the bald locust after his kind, and the beetle after his kind, and the grasshopper after his kind. But, after, but all other flying, creeping things which have four feet shall be an abomination unto you. And for these ye shall be unclean. Whosoever toucheth the carcass of them shall be unclean until the even. 
And whosoever beareth aught of the carcass of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And the carcasses of every beast which divideth the hoof and is not cloven-footed nor cheweth the cud are unclean unto you. Every one that toucheth them shall be unclean. And whatsoever goeth upon his paws among all manner of beasts that go on all four, those are unclean unto you. Whoso toucheth their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And he that beareth the carcass of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean unto you. These also shall be unclean unto you among the creeping things that creep upon the earth, the weasel and the mouse and the tortoise after his kind, and the ferret and the chameleon and the lizard and the snail and the mole. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whosoever doth touch them when they be dead shall be unclean until the evening. And now for the sake of time, we will skip down to verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the beasts, and of the fowl, and of every living creature that moveth in the waters, and of every creature that creepeth upon the earth, to make a difference between the unclean and the clean, between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. As far we read God's Word. Of all of the books in God's Word, surely Leviticus is one of the least familiar to us. And therefore, if we are going to understand this particular passage of Scripture, we must first get our bearings as it were. The overall theme of the book of Leviticus is that it teaches us about the covenant fellowship that we as a people may enjoy with our God. And the first ten chapters of the book of Leviticus set before us the one and only basis whereby we may have fellowship with our covenant God. Namely, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For chapters 1-10 through set before us, first of all, the various sacrifices that were a part of the Old Testament ceremonial law, as well as the work of the high priest in making those sacrifices. And thus, those first ten chapters point us unmistakably to our Savior Jesus Christ. And it's on that basis, on that foundation, that as God's people, we may fellowship with Him. Then in chapter 11, there is a shift. So that chapter 11 and following then set before us the manner in which we are to live as God's covenant people. That is, chapter 11 and following of the book of Leviticus teach us what a life of thankful obedience to our God looks like within the covenant. That helps us get our bearing. This evening, we look at chapter 11. 
which sets before us the various laws regarding clean versus unclean animals. And now no doubt, most everyone in the congregation is at least aware that these laws existed in the Old Testament. But though we are aware that they exist, no doubt for most of us, the details of them are cloudy. The purpose of them is obscure. And the relevance for us is totally missing. And the purpose of this sermon is to help in that regard. To bring clarity concerning those details. To give insight concerning the purpose of these laws for the Old Testament Israel and help us to have an understanding of how they're still relevant for us today. And so it's with that in mind that we consider Leviticus chapter 11 using as our theme the law concerning clean and unclean foods. First, we will look at the spiritual explanation. Second, at the abiding significance. And then third, the Gospel message. The law concerning clean and unclean foods. The spiritual explanation, the abiding significance, and the Gospel message. Children, I want you to imagine that you were living as an Israelite during the time of the Old Testament. And your father was going to take you out on a hunting trip. This was not just a hunting trip for fun, but this was a hunting and really fishing trip in order to bring in food to provide for the family. As you set off for the nearby pond or river or whatever it may be, as you are walking, you spot a wild boar. And you become excited and you grab for an arrow and you get ready to knock that arrow to shoot. But then your dad reminds you, no son, or no my daughter. Remember, we may not eat any sort of pig or hog. They are unclean. So with a little disappointment, you put away your bow and arrow. Then you walk a little further and you see a rabbit scurrying across the trail. And again, you try to grab your bow, but Dad once again says, no, no, son. Rabbits too are unclean. We may not eat them. At last, you make it to the nearby pond or river where you had laid traps previously and you check your traps and to your delight, you find that the the traps are full, the nets are full, and you see within them there's a very diverse catch and you are excited that you're going to be able to bring home all sorts of food for the family. But then as you start to go through it, your dad tells you, we may not keep this one, we may not keep that one. Take the tortoise, the crab, and the water snake. Throw all of those back. We may only keep these few fish. Children, if you were walking home, would you not ask your father, Dad, what does it mean that certain animals are unclean? Dad, why is it that there are certain animals that we may not eat? And if you were living 
during the time of the Old Testament, your dad would then explain to you Leviticus chapter 11. Because it's Leviticus chapter 11 that gives to us the various laws of what constitutes a clean animal that may be eaten and an unclean animal that may not be eaten. And there are four different categories of animals. Even as we see the categories at the end, verse 46, this is the law of the beast and of the fowl and of every living creature that moveth in the waters and of every creature that creepeth upon the earth. First, there are the beasts, the land animals. And for an animal, a land animal to be considered clean, it must meet two criteria. It must have a parted hoof and it must chew its cud. That's verse 3 of the chapter. The end of verse 2 says, These are the beasts which ye shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. That is, the land animals. And the first criteria is this, whatsoever parteth the hoof and is cloven-footed. And I take those as the same criteria. Those two things are one and the same. And the point is that this animal, its hoof has to be split into two so that it has two toes. You can think of the imprint that a cow leaves, for example. The second criteria is that it must chew the cud. That is, this must be an animal that chews its food, swallows it, it goes into a stomach where it's digested, and then the animal regurgitates that food back into its mouth and it chews on it some more. And some examples of animals that meet this criteria as found in Deuteronomy chapter 14 would be cows, goats, sheep, deer, antelope. All those animal meat, all animals meet both criteria and therefore were considered clean and may be eaten. And anything that did not meet both criteria was then unclean. That meant all predators were unclean because well, they don't chew grass. They, don't, they eat meat instead. What is more, there were many animals that met one criteria, but not both and therefore were considered unclean. For example, this passage says that the the coney, that is the rock hyrix, the hare, as well as camels, were all considered unclean because though they chewed their cud, or at least appeared to chew their cud, did not have cloven feet. And then on the other side, there were animals that did have cloven feet, but did not chew their cud, such as all pigs and swine, and therefore they too were considered unclean. So those were the criteria for land animals. The second category, the second grouping, is all animals in the sea or in the water. And again, there are two criteria for those to be clean. They must have fins and they must have scales. Which means basically anything that's really truly a fish was considered clean. All other Sea creatures were considered unclean so that clams, oysters, crabs, lobsters, eels, all of those would have been considered unclean. Third, the third category were the animals of the air. Anything that flew. And interestingly here, we're simply given a list. That list is in verses 13 and following. And these are they which ye shall have an abomination among the fowls. They shall not be eaten. They 
are an abomination, the eagle, the ossifrage, and the osprey, and then a long list that follows. And if you look at the list carefully, you'll notice most, if not all of them, are birds of prey, depending on what exactly these were. And what we're led to believe is that anything that's not on this list, or similar to creatures on it, was considered clean. So that, for example, a turtle dove would have been a clean animal. And then finally, the fourth category were creeping things. First, land animals. Second, anything in the waters. Third, animals in the air. And then fourth, the creeping things. And under the category of creeping things, there's really two subcategories. You have the subcategory of the insects and then the subcategory of rodents and reptiles. First, with regards to insects. That's what's in view in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, all fowls, really all flyers that creep, going upon all four or six, really, shall be an abomination unto you. Yet these may ye eat of every flying thing creeping that goeth upon all four, which have legs above their feet to leap with all upon the earth. The simplest way to explain this one is that basically all insects were unclean except for a very few, those that had a jointed back leg that enabled them to spring high into the air. So that's what, what's in view as clean are locusts and grasshoppers. Even as stated explicitly in verse 22, even these of them ye may eat, the locust after his kind, the bald locust after his kind, the beetle after his kind, and the grasshopper after his kind. So a few insects that were clean, the rest are unclean. And then there's that other subcategory, rodents and reptiles. And every indication is that they were all unclean. That's verses 29 and 30. These also shall be unclean unto you among the creeping things that creep upon the earth, the weasel and the mouse and the tortoise after his kind, and the ferret and the chameleon and the lizard and the snail and the mole. So this long list of clean versus unclean. But now the point was not so much to make the distinction, but along with this came various laws. And the primary law was that anything that was considered unclean was not to be eaten or touched if it was dead. That's verse 8 and 11. Of their flesh, that is of the unclean animals, shall ye not eat and their carcass shall ye not touch. They are unclean to you. That was concerning the land animals. Same things expressed in verse 11 concerning water creatures. They shall be even an abomination unto you. Ye shall not eat of their flesh, but ye shall have their carcasses in abomination. And notice the, the wording there. You are to hold them in an abomination. Not just avoid them, but there is to be an active rejecting of them. A repulsion against these things. And that same idea of do not eat them, do not touch their dead carcasses applies to all four categories. And what this means is that if the creature was living, you could still touch it. After all, the Israelites could ride on camels or on donkeys which were under the category of unclean. But the point was that once that animal was dead, you were not allowed to eat that animal and you were not even allowed to touch its dead carcass. And if you did, you yourself became unclean. That's what we are taught in verses 24 and 25. 
And for these ye shall be unclean. Whosoever toucheth the carcass of them shall be unclean until the evening, and whosoever beareth aught of the carcass of them shall wash his clothes and shall be unclean until evening. And the significance of that is that if you were unclean, well, then you were not allowed to come to the tabernacle. You were not allowed to come into God's very presence until you were pronounced ceremonially clean once again. So the main law concerning these animals is do not touch the carcasses and do not eat the unclean animals. In addition, this chapter also specifies that if a dead carcass of an unclean animal touched really anything, that object became unclean. And that's what is being explained in the verses that we did not read, verses 32 through 43. In that section, we learn that if you have a dead, unclean animal fall into a pot or into a cup, well, that pot or that cup is now unclean and it either needs to be washed or it needs to be destroyed altogether. And then in addition, even concerning those animals that were clean, if they died by some natural cause, that carcass too was off limits. And that's the point of verse 39. And if any beast of which ye may eat, so any clean animal dies, he that toucheth the carcass thereof shall be unclean until the evening. So that the point is if you're going to eat this animal, it has to be slaughtered specifically for that purpose. And then you may eat it, but if you find it dead by some natural cause, then it's unclean. That's the law itself and the details of the law. But now if you are that little boy or girl on the hunting trip with your dad, you're still left wondering, why would God give us this law? What is the spiritual purpose of this law? In order to explain the purpose, we must first address a number of wrong views. For this is indeed a very difficult passage. And with the difficulty comes a whole host of different explanations. And it can actually be quite difficult to sort through them and to figure out whether or not they are valid. Because in a number of cases, there might be an element of truth to them, but yet they don't quite... They're not quite the main point. And in other cases, it's in the explanation given in harmony with the overall message of Scripture. But again, it's, it's not the main point. And what makes it even more complicated is that there are some who say, here's the purpose. But when they say that, there are ones who clearly mean the purpose as this is the reason why God gave the law. But in other cases, they're really just giving the rationale for, for why these animals are clean and these animals are unclean. So, there's a difficulty in even sorting through the wrong explanations, but we do need to address them and do so carefully and cautiously, recognizing that even in some of the wrong explanations, there's an element of truth. First, the explanation here is not for health and hygiene. There are many who take that position because they say if you look at clean versus unclean animals. Many of the clean ones are those that are 
good for you from a, a nutritional point of view, and many of the unclean animals are the ones that spread diseases, for example. So that they argue this is a matter of health and hygiene, but that's not the point. Because the distinction is between clean and unclean, not healthy versus unhealthy. And if the distinction was a matter of health, why would Jesus Christ do away with this law when He came and fulfilled it? He would have kept this intact, surely. And insofar as there is a discernible pattern between these animals are good for you and these ones spread diseases, well, insofar as that is present here, well, that's teaching us simply that obedience to God's law is good for us. So it's not health or hygiene. Second, the explanation is not cultic. By that I mean there are some who look at these lists of animals that are unclean and they say, well, many of these are associated with pagan rituals and cultic rites so that many of these animals were worshipped by the nation surrounding Israel. And the explanation is then, well, God is keeping them from falling into those same worship practices. But that's not the main point either. Because if that was God's purpose, surely one of the animals that would have been declared unclean would have been the cow. Think only of what happened at Mount Sinai and how Israel fell into the worship of the golden calf. That said, our point is this is not the main idea because there is an element of truth in some of the Levitical laws that is the purpose to make a distinction between Israel and the, the worship practices around them. And we'll come back to this in a moment to see there is an element of truth, but again, it's not the main point. So it's not for health reasons. It's not cultic, nor is it ethnic. And here we're addressing the view of some that say, well, this is all symbolic of the distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the Old Testament. The, the clean represented the Jews. The unclean, that represented the Gentiles. Now again, we have to be careful because in the New Testament we see that the doing away with this law goes hand in hand with the fact that Gentiles are now being brought into the church. But that's different than saying the law is meant to symbolize the distinction. That's not the main point. So what is the main point? What then, is, what then positively is the spiritual purpose of this law? The explanation is that by these laws, God was teaching the people of Israel that a life of holiness requires, from, requires abstaining from anything and everything that God deems unclean. That this has to do with a life of holiness is clear from the passage. It's clear from the context first of all. For if we back up into chapter 10 where this whole idea of clean versus unclean is introduced, we read in Leviticus 10 verses 9 and 10 this, Do not drink wine nor strong drink thou nor thy sons with thee when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and that ye may put difference between holy 
and unholy and between unclean and clean. Note the parallelism there. There's a distinction between holy and unholy that goes hand in hand with clean versus unclean. And that same idea is expressed at the end of Leviticus chapter 11, those last few verses that we read. Here, God is telling us the purpose. Verse 44, For I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And then, Verse 47, to make a difference between the unclean and the clean and between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. It's about holiness. And now, as those verses express, this is necessary because our God is holy. And that means He is free, set apart from all sin. He's perfectly devoted to Himself. He's morally pure. There are no imperfections in our God. That's holiness. And now we are called to be holy even as He is holy. Which means from a a negative point of view, separated, free from sin, but then positively devoted, consecrated unto our God. And these laws concerning clean versus unclean are meant to emphasize that negative aspect of a life of holiness being Free, separate from anything that's sin. So that what God is teaching by these laws is that there are certain things, if we take them in, they will make us unclean in the eyes of our God. There are certain things that if we consume them, that's contrary to living a life of fellowship with our God. So that this ceremonial law was meant to point to a spiritual reality. That's the idea here. So that being unclean ceremonially, ritually, according to this law, was a picture of being spiritually unclean. A sinner in the eyes of God. And God gave them this long list of laws to remind them again and again of this This calling to make a distinction between that which is holy, right, and good, and that which is unholy, that which is sinful. So that every time the Israelites saw an animal, they had to be thinking in terms of clean versus unclean, holy versus unholy. And it's when we have that understanding that then the specific rationale for why this animal fits in that category and this animal fits in the other category becomes much less important. Because the explanation is no different than that law that God gave at the very beginning. When He put two different trees in the garden and said, you may eat this one, but you may not eat that one. God decided what was right and what was wrong. And He's doing the exact same thing here. You may eat these animals, but you may not eat these other animals. And that does not make this law arbitrary. It just points us to the fact that Our God is the divine lawgiver. It's His divine prerogative to decide what's right and what's wrong. What's holy and what's unholy. And that's what He does here. 
And it's only when we have that foundation, that main point in view, that God is teaching the people that a life of holiness includes abstaining from anything and everything that God deems unclean, that we can then bring in those other ideas that are secondary. So that, yes, there is a sense in which by giving this law to the people, God was making Israel distinct from the other nations around them. No other nation had these laws concerning what food you may eat and what food you may not eat. And in addition, by giving them these laws, God was helping them to maintain that distinction, to live an antithetical life because this would have prevented so much fellowship with the unbelievers around them. You could not sit down and eat a meal of pork if you were an Old Testament Israelite. This served the antithesis. And what is more, this would have helped to keep them from going after those pagan rituals and those wrong worship it, worships that involve some of these animals and worship to these animals. This was yet another barrier against that. But all of that's secondary to the main spiritual purpose to teach God's people that a life of holiness involves abstaining from anything and everything that God deems unclean. It's when we have that understanding that we can then start to see the abiding significance for us. Because there is still relevance, there is still application for us as a New Testament church. But now to make it clear, to be clear, that does not mean the law itself is still binding for us because it's not. This is not a law that we must follow. And this was something that the early church had to establish. For the early church had to wrestle with how to understand these laws because there was a group within the early church, the Judaizers, who had a wrong teaching about these laws. It's expressed, for example, in Acts 15, verse 5. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And understand, excuse me, understand when it speaks of the law of Moses, it has in view the ceremonial law. These these dietary restrictions of what you may or may not eat. So that the error of the Judaizers was both that these laws were still in effect, they're still binding, they're still a requirement, and even worse, they were teaching you must keep them in order to be saved. And thus in God's providence, the earliest church was forced to wrestle with the question, how are we to understand these laws? And the church came together for the first broader assembly when they met in that Jerusalem council to face this question. And the church, led by the Spirit, rightly came to the conclusion, no, these laws are, no, are not still in effect. They are no longer binding upon us. And that's the clear testimony of the New Testament Scriptures. A big part of the, the evidence is that vision of Peter. Children, you remember Peter's vision of that sheet coming down from heaven. It 
opens, it unfolds, and there's a whole bunch of different animals that are unclean. And the Lord says to Peter, Arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, Not so, my Lord. Because I've never eaten something that's unclean. I've never been defiled in that way. And God says, What God hath cleansed, that call thou not common. God was making clear it's now permissible to eat these things. And now there's more to it. He was also showing how the Gentiles were being brought in, but he was making clear that it's permissible to eat these things. And that's not just Peter's vision, that's the whole of the New Testament. For example, in Romans 14, verse 20, in the context of foods that may be eaten or not be eaten, Paul says, all things indeed are pure. There's nothing that's literally unclean. This is the testimony of Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. Do not let anyone bother you with the ceremonial law that you may not eat this and you must only eat this. It's all fulfilled in Christ. And then 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if, ye be, if it be received with thanksgiving. And it's on the basis of these passages that the Belgic Confession teaches what it does in Article 25. Article 25 of the Belgic Confession is entitled The Abolishing of the Ceremonial Law and reads this way at the beginning, we believe that the ceremonies and figures of the law ceased at the coming of Christ and that all the shadows are accomplished so that the use of them must be abolished amongst Christians. The use of these laws, these dietary laws, clean versus unclean, is abolished. These laws are no longer in effect for us. They they are no longer binding for us. And that's the reason why it's permissible for us to eat pork or shellfish, or other animals that were previously considered unclean. So the law itself is no longer in effect. But that does not mean that there's no application for us. Because as I said, there is indeed an abiding significance because the truth and substance of these laws still remains. After all, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 teaches us All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This passage of Scripture, Leviticus chapter 11, is profitable for us who live in the New Testament. And it's in harmony with that that the Belgian Confession says what it does in the rest of Article 25. Because the article goes on to say, yet the truth and substance of them remain with us in Jesus Christ in whom they have their completion. In the meantime, we still use the testimonies taken out of the Law and the Prophets to confirm us in the doctrine of the Gospel to regulate our life in all honesty to the glory of God according to His will. The Belgian Confession is saying is that the underlying principle 
the truth and substance, the spiritual purpose still remains. It's still valuable for us. So that what this law teaches us in a unique way, in really a a vivid way, a graphic way that helps us to understand a life of holiness, what this law teaches us is that a life of holiness means abstaining from anything and everything that God deems unclean. There are certain things that if we take them in, will make us unclean. There are certain things that we ought not consume because it's contrary to a life of fellowship with our God. And now the application is not so much what we take in with our mouths. Although I suppose there is application concerning alcohol as well as the use of drugs. But I believe the main application concerns what we take in with our eyes and our ears. Congregation, what are you watching? What is it that you take in through the television? the computer, your tablet, your smartphone? What words are you reading in your book? Whether it's a physical copy or an e-book. Is it clean? Or is it unclean? How would God Himself characterize it? Do you still watch it? If Jesus Christ was sitting there physically right next to you, what about with your ears? What are we taking in? What are we listening to when we drive in our cars? What are the lyrics that we are consuming with our ears? Are they clean? Or are they unclean? And understand, the question is not does the world consider them clean or unclean? The question is not is there a parental advisory sticker on the album? But how would God Himself characterize it? There are certain things that if we take them in, through our eyes, through our ears, they make us unclean. There are certain things that are sinful for us to consume that are contrary to a life of fellowship with our God. So what is it we're touching? What is it we are taking in? If we kept ourselves clean, If we're honest with ourselves, the answer is no. I have not kept myself clean from all that around me that defiles, that corrupts, that pollutes. 
I'm a sinner. And as I stand before God, I am indeed spiritually dirty. And that's exactly what God wants us to see about ourselves. That's the whole reason He gave this law to the people of Israel. So that they might be driven to Jesus Christ. And the washing that is found in Him. Because you see, there is a Gospel message embedded into Leviticus chapter 11. And that Gospel message is that there is indeed a cleansing that's hinted at in three different verses here. In verse 25, first of all, Verse 25, And whosoever beareth aught of the carcass of them shall, the carcass of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Verse 28, the same thing. And he that beareth the carcass of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean unto you. And then the same idea expressed in verse 40. And he that eateth of the carcass of it shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. So that what all three of those passages say is that there's a washing. Yes, you'll still be unclean till the evening, but there was a way to become clean again. And all of this then points us to the blood of Jesus Christ whereby we are washed. Whereby we are cleansed from the the defilement, the corruption of sin. And that's the Gospel message that shines brightly on the pages of the New Testament so that we read in 1 John 1, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. This is the teaching of Hebrews 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And the context makes so clear that the, the blood that we're being sprinkled, the, the thing that we're being sprinkled with is the blood of Jesus Christ. We're washed in Him. Same thing in Revelation 7, verse 14, where John has that vision of the saints who are in heaven. He sees this, or we, I should say, we read this. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest, and he said unto me, These are they which come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that the good news of the Gospel is that though we are spiritually dirty on account of our sin, though we deserve to be banished from God's presence, cast into Everlasting darkness. There's a way for us to become clean again. And that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And understand that the blood of Jesus Christ has the power to cleanse, to wash away our sins. Because the giving of His blood involved the giving of His life as the Son of God. That's the point of those sacrifices. There was a life given. It's not that just Jesus Christ came into this world so that He could grow up, take a knife, slit His hand, press out some blood, and that's the blood we need. That's not how Christ washes us. 
But He went to the cross where there were nails driven through His hands. And He was required to lay down His life. His blood was shed to that end. And it's only because it involves the death of the One who is the Son of God that that blood has the power, the ability to cleanse, to wash away all of our sins so that we who were dirty, spiritually unclean, are now made clean again. That's the Gospel message. Actually, it's only half. Because it's not just that our sins are washed away. It's also that we are given His cleanliness, His righteousness as our own. For any time we come to these laws that say do this and live, we must remember the only possibility of life is that because Christ did it for us. For our Savior Jesus Christ, when He came into this world, was born of a woman and born under the law. He subjected Himself to the law of God, including this law. So that Jesus Christ, His whole life as He lived under the ceremonial law, avoided anything and everything that would make Him unclean. But it's not just that He, he kept the law externally, but He kept the spiritual substance of it. Not once did Jesus Christ take in with His eyes something that He ought not take in. There's not one time that He delighted in something that He heard with His ears that was sinful. But He kept the law of God perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness. And it's that obedience of Christ, the righteousness of Christ that is made ours that becomes the ground for our justification. So it is both that we are Washed, we're cleansed. And we're given a cleanliness. A spotless righteousness that will serve as the basis for us then to have fellowship with our God. And it's knowing this, knowing this good news that then becomes the motivation for us to then Heed this Word of God. And to be holy even as He is holy. And that's the connection we're meant to see in light of the context. Remember, the first ten chapters of the book are put first for a reason. All the laws about the different sacrifices, all the work of the priest, because that's the basis That's the ground for a life of fellowship with God. That's the only way a sinful, unholy people can live and dwell with our God on the basis of the sacrifice. And it's only after those first ten chapters have been, that groundwork has been laid that we come to chapter 11 and following. And we have these laws about what's clean and what's not clean and how to live a holy life in part to remind us of our need of Christ, 
but also to set before us this is what a life of gratitude to our God looks like. And now out of thankfulness for the sacrifice of Christ, here's how you are to be holy. This is the manner in which you are to live. And that's also the point being made at the end of the chapter. In verse 44 and following, it begins with, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. Notice it begins with, I am your God. I'm the one who's taken you out of Egypt. Who's delivered you through the Red Sea and who is bringing you to the promised land. I am the one who has established the covenant. I maintain the covenant. And one day I will perfect the covenant. So that when what follows, so that when we read what follows, therefore sanctify yourselves. The point cannot possibly be sanctify yourselves so that God comes to live and dwell in your midst. Sanctify yourselves as the, the ground, the basis for Him to have this covenant with you. That's not at all the point. But the point is God has already established His covenant. And we enjoy the life of the covenant by faith in Jesus Christ. And then when God's Word comes to us and says, Be, there, be ye therefore holy, the point is this is the manner in which we are to live as we enjoy that fellowship with our God. So that the overall point is that it's thankfulness for the saving work of Jesus Christ that propels a life of sanctification. Which life includes abstaining from anything and everything that God deems unclean. So may He grant us the grace to say no to those things that are contrary to a life of fellowship with this God. And may He give us the grace to live a life of thankful obedience unto Him for all that He's done for us. Amen. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word, including this Word. A passage that perhaps was unfamiliar to us. A passage that we did not understand and certainly did not see the relevance for us. We thank Thee for the work of Thy Spirit to shed a light upon this Word of Thine so that we now have understanding. And so that we can now come to this passage and see how it points us to our Savior Jesus Christ, at least our need for Him. And at the same time, sets before us what a life of thankful obedience looks like. Bless this Word unto our hearts. We pray all this for Christ's sake. Amen.